Welcome to another night of Warrior Reads. As always, make sure that you've handled anything before bed, that the room is dark, and that you're in a comfortable position. Remember, as you're listening, if you get excited by a story or interested, don't worry about it. Now is not the time for your mind to be racing. Now is the time for your mind to be resting. As always, we'll have copies of the recordings available on our website, as well as even the ability to order it should you want to in the morning. Now is the time for your reward for a good day lived or a reminder to be a warrior tomorrow. I'll give you about five seconds to clear your head and then we'll begin. Welcome, warriors. Tonight, our selection is from Mastery Interviews with 30 Remarkable People by Joan Evelyn Ames. And we will dive into a conversation with James Ingo Freed, an internationally respected architect and senior partner with Pi Cobb Freed and Partners. James has triumphed despite the challenges that he's faced with his seven-year battle with Parkinson's disease and become one of the world's top masters of his craft. Because you cultivate and demonstrate proficiency and expertise in whatever skills you choose, your mastery allows you to exert your will over yourself, nature, and your opponent. Mastery is one of the essential elements of being an effective warrior and it's what sets you apart as a valuable member of your tribe. James reminds us that the warrior path never stops, and every day is another opportunity to master yourself, your skills, and be better than we were the day before. And that's what this book is all about. As always, you can read it at any time in the future, and it's worth the read. But this selection is a great example of a warrior who committed themselves to self-evolution and mastery in the face of adversity. As you fall asleep and let go of all the trials and victories of the day, allow your inner warrior to soak in the inspiration to persevere and achieve your victories that you have waiting for you on your path. So relax and enjoy. Before we dive into the conversation, let's take a look at a little bit more info about James. James Ingo Freed is an internationally respected architect with buildings of major importance around the United States. He's one of three design partners at Pie Cobb Freed and Partners in New York City. After receiving his architectural degree from the Illinois Institute of Technology, and serving in the U.S. Corps of Engineers, he joined the firm, originally known as IM, Pie and Partners, in 1956. Over the years, Mr. Freed has been the recipient of a long list of major architectural awards, including the prestigious National Medal of Arts, which was conferred on him by President Clinton at the White House in 1995. Some of the major buildings for which he's responsible include the San Francisco Public Library, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., 
the Ronald Reagan Building, and International Culture and Trade Center, part of the Federal Triangle in Washington, D.C. The United States Courts House in Omaha, Nebraska, and the expansion of the Los Angeles Convention Center, First Bank Plaza in Minneapolis, the Jacob K. Javitas Convention Center and Plaza in New York City, and Electrical Engineering Quadrangle at Stafford University. Mr. Freed is taught at Cooper Union, Cornell University, and the Rhode Island School of Design, Columbia University, and Yale. When I asked Mr. Freed about the challenge of Parkinson's disease, which he had for 17 years, he replied, not a challenge. What else would I do but continue my work? And in spite of the physical difficulties that the disease brings, he continued to triumph in his field. The Holocaust Memorial, the most famous and acclaimed of his recent buildings, is a stunning accomplishment in every way. Architecturally, politically, aesthetically, and humanistically. He has created an environment that simultaneously evokes the deepest horrors of human nature and the greatest spirit prevails in human beings. It is both a harrowing and inspiring experience. One walks out of the building deeply moved, shaken, and strangely hopeful. So now let's hear words from the master himself and glean some of his wisdom and how you can apply it to your own life. Do you have a definition of mastery? No, I would say mastery is anything that is beyond me. A lot of what is called mastery is not necessarily mastery. I don't believe I have mastery. I believe I have a constant urge to investigate. Speculation and investigation are what drive me. Looking at the great people you know and come in contact with, are there certain qualities that you recognize? There may be certain recognizable qualities. I change my mind about that quite often. The people I know who have been great are the people who are fascinated. They have an idea that is sufficiently compelling to them, and they will keep that idea going through time and space, through good and bad. That idea will then inform their future work, even though it may come in a different form. They are on a track. They have found a path. Now, I'll probably deny this after I've said it, but great people are also willing to follow other tracks and change paths. They have the flexibility to be in search of a better idea. At the same time, the change of path does not look so different from their original path, if one thinks about it. When did you first become aware of your life's direction? I guess I was about 15 or 16. I was not specifically aware of my direction, nor was I compelled by vision. I loved the idea of building buildings. I liked the autonomy it gave me. I liked the fact that buildings, like mountains, were there forever. A building is a very physical thing. There's a separation between myself and it. So that by the time a building is finished, I no longer have any sense of authorship of it. It has its own autonomy. I thought early on that the most important thing in my life was to be an architect. That was a mistake 
because I realized later that the most important thing was to live a meaningful and good life, an interesting life within the culture of architecture. Defining yourself by what you do is very problematic. How do you transcend it? Anyway, it is difficult to talk about this because I was a shy boy. I was not very outgoing, yet I do what I do mostly by working with people. All I know is that for reasons that are yet unclear to me, I'm very happy when I'm drawing. I'm very happy when I'm climbing up buildings. Making architecture does satisfy me a lot, even when I'm working on a project that's problematical. Has there been an important turning point in your life? Quite frankly, the big watershed event came when I finished up the body of work which summarized what I'd learned in school. Then I set off on my own. That was about 15 to 20 years ago. Everything else, everything up to that point, I tend to see as a prelude. I've had Parkinson's now for 17 years, and so the limits of my life push me to do things. I always wondered what I would do if I knew I only had so many years left to live. I'm sure I'd be doing the same thing. You don't change fields if you're serious about what you do. Not being serious is a real problem. At the same time, you also have to be able to laugh at whatever you do. Mastery to me always meant that everything stops. So I resist that you think of me as a master. I would rather be a student of nature. I'd rather continue my research and studies, which are my experiments. I have all sorts of architectural agendas that I have yet to attack. All sorts of things that I still want to do and to look at. Someone who wrote about a building I did recently said it was strange to see me exploring new ideas in my work after all these years. While it may be strange, I'd rather not be identifiable like a brand name product. So many people in the arts are identified by their handwriting. As soon as I've developed a certain style, I try to look beyond it. But tell me about yourself. What made you want to write this book? For many years, I worked part-time in a nursing home, and I loved to listen to the patients talk about their lives. Almost everyone had wonderful stories to tell, and I came across many examples of dedication or courage or unrecognized greatness among these older people. Slowly, I began collecting stories about ordinary people who were able to accomplish wonderful things or make profound changes in their life. Then, in 1987, I came across an article on Mastery in Esquire magazine that presented five keys to achieving greatness in any field. The ideas ring true to the stories I'd been collecting. The author, George Leonard, got such a tremendous response to this article that he went on to publish the material in a little wonderful book called Mastery. What are the keys that he lists? The first of these five keys is having a teacher or a mentor who might be a mentor, not in a direct way, but a mentor who teaches just by his existence. Has this been the case for you? 
I've had two or three such mentors. They taught by silence, one of the acknowledged systems of teaching. But I don't want to talk about them. Tell me more. The first was a mentor. What was the second? Commitment. You have to make a very strong commitment because life knocks you down in so many ways. If you don't have that commitment, you don't get back up and fight again. Willingness to take a risk or playing the edge was the other of the keys. Then practice, just plain dog work. They are all true. I would add the ability to have self-critical stance. The ability to critique, not criticize, but critique your own work. It is difficult to do. To my mind, work that is taken at its first blush, immediately adopted and developed, usually suffers because it's not subject to self-critical analysis. The self must be objective about the self. You simply cannot say, okay, I did it, it's great. It may be terrible. You have to be willing to be hard on yourself. I would also add that you should not repeat yourself in order to make life easier. Don't do the same thing. Just because something worked once doesn't mean it will work twice. This is really the same as playing the edge. In the end, you have to look at the human dimension. In this country today, a lot of people insist that humanism is dead. In other words, the person, the individual life, is not important. I think it is important. I don't believe that humanism is dead by any means. People look to other disciplines for their clues. And so, they unfortunately give up the richest ground in which they can dig, their own discipline. There's so much richness in architecture. You only need to go out and look around to find it. The richness is always humanist. It's human scale, human use. If you call an object architecture, you should at least be able to occupy it. It's not a matter of semantics at all. It's a matter of what lies at the root of architecture, and that is human habitation. There are many good architects who deny that, but they create things that are explicitly of no use. They're not meant for human habitation. What makes architecture interesting to me is the explicit usability of it. If you mix that usability with art, with morality, with aesthetics, then you have possibly a source for your work. So architecture is in part a social art that reflects you and the way you live your life. In addition to all the necessary things that you must do to house, to shelter, you have to remember that you are also making a public art. And that's a gift to the city. The finest architecture is a gift to the city. What intrigues you most about your work? One of the elements that has been central to my workspace, the distance between things. I've never been very interested in the walls that edge things. I'm interested in the space between things, the courtyard, the void between the two walls. That's been the real driving issue of my work. And the older I grow, the more engaged I feel with the voids and spaces of buildings. It's like having an ear tuned to one kind of music. Your ear absorbs that particular sound. 
and you are informed by it. So can the eye be attuned to one kind of space? There are lots of people who miss out on these forms of pleasure, sensations of touch, sensations of scale, sensations of the void of space. To my mind, these are pleasures like listening to music. The great cellist, Jano Starker, talks about not being able to imagine life without music. For him, it's a necessity, like food. Yes, when I go to a city, I first start looking at buildings. That feeds me. What's more, architecture gives you the space within, inhabitable space, that you can share with other people. Among all your buildings, do you have a particular favorite? I have about 10 buildings that I like very much. Probably because they represent a datum or a reference point of my own judgment of my work. I go back sometimes and I look at some of the buildings and I can't believe that I did that. All three of my Washington buildings are among my favorites. These buildings are within three or four blocks of each other. The Holocaust Memorial, the Ronald Reagan Building, and 1299 Pennsylvania Avenue. They all deal with interior space in a way that I like. They all deal with a game that you play with the surface of the buildings to make them integrate with the other buildings around them. Who was your primary teacher? Mies van der Rohe. Although it is very difficult to say that because I find that the teacher is very important, but also limiting. His vision was his vision, but there was also no way it could be anyone else's vision because he approached architecture as a way of sorting through the philosophical questions of his time. He was not involved with aesthetics. He was not involved with multitudinous ways of looking at things. He was involved with his own work in a very simple way. His work was always so reductive. So the limitation was that he had such a powerful vision of himself and somehow it blocked your own vision. There's one building I did in downtown New York. And after that building was finished, I said, no more, no more. But it is interesting to have something to struggle against, some big floppy thing inside you that you have to constantly struggle out of. I felt great relief when I broke away. I graduated in 1953, was in the army for a while, and then came to New York. I tried to work by proxy, and I couldn't. I had to reject the teachings of Miles Van Der Rohe while accepting it. To me, a key of a successful teacher is to accept but reject simultaneously. Maybe a great student does that as well. Are you still teaching architecture? I taught from 1959 until 1989, until I finally realized that the students were beginning to be good and I was beginning to be a bore. So I stopped teaching and concentrated more on work. What are the pitfalls along the road to mastery? The things that bring people down. One of the things that bring people down is when they think they have arrived and then they give up their search. Costa Rica had a president who won a Nobel Prize 
and the first thing he did in office was demolish the army. He said that peace is not something that you achieve. You're never finished. It's something you have to struggle for every day. If you give up the struggle, you lose the possibility of peace. Another problem is if you try to live on the perks of the situation. So it becomes hedonism and life's pleasures take over. Right. Life's pleasures are never. Nobody tells you that doing work is a pleasure. But it is. And so to stop practicing is also a pitfall. There are millions of them. So what lies ahead for you now? Most of the same. It all starts in here. He opens his sketchbook. And we look at drawings for his Holocaust Museum memorial. This was a project where I had to balance politics against the undoable. Originally, the Hall of Remembrance extended further out into the courtyard, was more of the public realm. But after going through the whole negotiation process, I said, well, what the hell, I'll throw it all away and push the hall all the way back against the main building. And it's become much better because now there's a complexity of space there that really works. The hall becomes a little object in the courtyard. And the hole is augmented by the sculpture. There are two or three great sculptures in that building. I understand there was a controversy over the memorial. How did you manage the negotiation process with the city and your client? It's part of the process. Of course, the city is always engaged in lowered expectations because they have so many constituents to satisfy. Then there's myself and my client to satisfy as well. What you have to do then is engage the marketplace of ideas. Once I know what I want to achieve, I turn myself into a sort of Zen architect. I go through all the permutations of the loss I may face. Experiencing the grief of loss ahead of time liberates me because I can't go through it twice. And having gone through the whole feeling of loss, I don't have to fear it. Once I've done that, I'm willing to go in there and fight for what I want. When we get to the actual negotiations, I find that I never lose as much as I'm afraid I'm going to lose. It's sort of an ad hoc situation. It's far from being a master, far from mastery. So as we see here, warriors, as James continued to push back from admitting that he was a master, it's because he's so passionate about perseverance, pushing forward, continually learning, and continually being better, making that commitment and taking the action is what makes you a masterful warrior. Continue the path.